from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by Marshall University, with more than 100 degree programs offered in four locations and online. More about the Marshall family at marshall.edu. Good evening from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. Over the last few years, lawmakers have passed dozens of bills creating policy and changing existing code in an effort to respond to West Virginia's drug crisis. Tonight, a focus on that epidemic and the work that continues here to address it. Earlier today, the director of the Office of Drug Control Policy discussed the recently completed statewide response plan. Here's Bob Hansen speaking to the House Committee on Prevention and Treatment of Substance Abuse. We still have a long way to go to save lives. That's important to me. It should, it's important to people in the audience and it's important to you. So we are going to continue working hard. We've had a 6% reduction in overdose fatalities from 2017 to 18. Hopefully 2019 we'll have even better, we don't know what that data is, but we need to save lives, so that's got to be uh, uh, one of our priorities. Improving access to treatment, all avenues of treatment is so important. When somebody is uh, ready and needing help, we need to be able to respond as quickly as we can to that. Building out the recovery support system, uh, which includes housing and social determinants of health and employment, and then addressing stigma all addressed in our plan. Joining me now is the chair of that committee, the House Committee on Prevention and Treatment of Substance Abuse, Delegate Matthew Rohrbach. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me this evening. I, I also want to say that you are vice chair of the Committee of, of Seniors, Children, and Family Issues. Yes. You're also a, a longtime member of the uh, Health Committees, the Education Committee. Um, and you're and you're from Huntington, which we which we know is a community that has really uh, gathered together and coordinated on this effort. You, you're also a physician. I am. Uh, so I, you know, I put that out there because you're com coming from many different perspectives and working groups to address this. So let's begin with your response, your reaction um, to, to the testimony you heard about the, the, year, the uh, substance use response plan, a three-year plan, how it might align with the work you're doing. Well, first of all, we have excellent leadership in Director Hansen. And I'm very excited by the plan that he's laid out. I think it's very comprehensive. I think it attacks the problem from all the angles. And uh, I thought the uh, actionable points that he came up with are very doable. Uh, some need some funding. Some are going to need some legislation. But I think that will help further our goal to get this problem under control because we simply cannot move forward as a state if this plan fails. 
Uh, we have a, a listing of, of the goals that um, the director presented today. Again, this is the West Virginia Substance Use Response Plan. Um, basically, it's prompt access to treatment, options for treatment, measuring and tracking prevention, treatment, and recovery outcomes, promoting evidence-based prevention in schools and communities, monitoring the ongoing initiatives, connecting the prison population that needs substance use disorder treatment and services with those services, and supporting employment for those recovery. Um, you've been working on this. You had several bills passed last session that, have, that, that, that really touch on all of these. Um, but it all comes down to funding, does it not? Well, it certainly does. And uh, we have put a lot of money into this problem, but we'll continue to put the funds that it's going to take because we can't get employers to come here and locate in our state until we get this problem under control. It's just that simple. So we've put money into the Ryan Brown uh, Recovery Fund. Tell we, us a little bit about that. Well, what is it? Ryan Brown's that fund was started about five years ago. I believe all totaled we've put 22 million in that fund and it's gone to get recovery services in the state. Uh, we've actually expanded it a little bit last year, not just to treatment, but to recovery services. We went from, when that fund was formed, about 100 treatment beds to about 950 treatment beds now. So now we're looking at some recovery services after people get out of acute treatment. So it's, it's all part of a continuum that we have to continue to get people to sober and get their lives back. When it comes to the Ryan Brown Fund, I know that your committee has, uh, has a bill that it, it, it's passed out, has it not? It directs any money um, from the AG's, uh, the litigation that we're involved in, uh, instead of going to the AG's office, it would come back to, to the legislature for allocation. Why is that important? Well, it's important to get some money into this funding mechanism. And uh, that bill also expanded to add neonatal abstinence syndrome beds. So we, we want to look at all aspects of this problem. So I would hope that this money could come back to help solve some of the problems and the suffering that's been created by the opioid, opioid problem. And this could be significant money. Uh, we're led to believe it could be very significant money. Um, you you, you uh, talked about treatment beds, recovery beds, uh, some of the other things that we've heard, um, the director of the Office of Drug Control Policy, Bob Hansen, and then the chair of, of the council, Brian Gallagher, talk about um, is, is the plan really promotes evidence-based treatment. Um, and they spoke to the need for that. Now, some of the evidence-based uh, treatment programs, as you well know, are not universally embraced yet. Uh, Medication-assisted treatment and harm reduction programs. I want you to speak um, to both of those. Let's, let's begin with medication-assisted treatment. Your position on that uh, particular treatment. Well, I, I'm fine with medical-assisted treatment. We basically have three main treatment modalities. Medical-assisted treatment, faith-based, and abstinence treatment. Uh, I think they all three work. 
and uh, but medical assisted treatment uh, is certainly being utilized in our drug courts in our family drug courts which was one of our bills last year and uh, we're going to get an update next week of how those are working on a committee and then also we've just we've got to continue to get this into our regional jails which we're doing through something called the goals program which the director spoke about today and we've again we've got to support people to get them sober get them out and then get them employed and what about the uh, harm reduction programs, specifically the, the needle exchange programs? Well, I think we, there were a couple bullet points in their plan about that. Uh, the thing that I liked the most was, again, they wanted to look at evidence-based uh, programs and with a special focus on how to get rid of the needle debris. And that, I think, is imperative because if there's we saw a program closed down here in the capital city because people were upset over the needle debris. So it, it, it is a two-way street. I mean, we want to prevent communicable diseases such as hepatitis C and HIV, but we also have to be cognizant that people live in these communities and they're frankly tired of the degree of needle uh, debris laying around their communities. So I was very encouraged that that's one of the bullet points in the plan is for places that have needle exchanges to really work with them to get the degree of uh, just throwing the needles out um, to get that way down or hopefully eliminate it. And, and of course, the, the point of that program, um, uh, you know, advocates say is to uh, with the exchanges to offer treatment and and there are encouraging numbers there are and that's the thing is it, it's another way to get people out of the shadows and get them into some form of organized care and then offer them treatment and when they're ready hopefully they'll uh, take advantage of it another program that I'm a huge advocate for that started in this state in Huntington and frankly was one of the first ones in the in the state and in the nation were our quick response teams mm -hmm. where we go out and identify people that have received naloxone for an overdose visit them in their homes with a group of three people and one of the main goals is to try to get them interested in treatment and if they're interested then get them on into treatment. So we've got to do a, a better job of identifying people and getting them into the services because if we don't, they're just not, they're not gonna have access that they should have to treatment. And, and again, the QRTs are, um, are, are seeing a good portion of those people responding and, and wanting help. What other bills uh, are, are, can we expect to come or have come from your committee this session? Well, uh, another thing that we haven't talked about, but I was very encouraged that that was in the plan today, is tobacco and vaping. Mm -hmm. uh, to, this is and it was tobacco-free day today. To I, I thought of you. I knew you'd be quite happy to see I, that. Yeah, I was very happy because uh, we have an epidemic among our school children. Uh, last week's committee just dealt with tobacco abuse and vaping. And we had a group of students from Boone County, two young ladies who as part of their senior capstone project had surveyed the three high schools there and found that 52% of the students are vaping. 
And then we had our chief health officer for the state do a presentation. Nationwide, 27% of teenagers are vaping. So we had, and we've all seen reports of, of these bizarre lung diseases starting to pop up. And I would argue that I think as a physician, we're just on the tip of the iceberg to some of the problems we're gonna see from vaping. I was very encouraged to see that we're gonna do that. Now, I will tell you that there's a bill that's gonna come forward fairly soon to take some of the money from the Rainy Day B Fund, which is monies that, uh, there was 250 million originally to set up Rainy Day B, and that comes from the tobacco settlement money. Mm -hmm. Now, we've never really done anything with the interest, and that 250 million has to stay there, but we can spend the earnings, and the earnings have built up fairly substantially now. We would like to take a small portion of those earnings and to rebuild some of our tobacco uh, education programs, particularly our RAISE programs and our teenagers, and really try to convince kids that we need to, to, to maybe lead some healthier lifestyles in this state. In terms of all substance use disorder, the different substances, you, you have said that mental health is the most underserved part of our healthcare system. And, and so I want you to talk about how that relates to what we know or what we call adverse childhood experiences um, and how critical it is to address those. Um, as we're, we're, if we're going to ever get a hold on addiction. Well, obviously, we're, I think we're gonna talk about some of that in a couple weeks, but uh, ACE or adverse childhood experiences is a big problem. And I think this legislature, uh, under our leadership, stepped up last year and put a lot of money to the tune of about 20-some million dollars into getting more counselors and nurses in our schools because that's where you're gonna identify these problems in our young children is through their, their school experiences. But right now, we didn't have adequate people there to, to deal with it. I think that the bill that we've passed to, to really spend some money on an ongoing basis is gonna help a lot in identifying these problems and then hopefully come up with some curative solutions. Um, I've heard you say that last year your committee uh, really focused on treatment and expansion of treatment. This year you really want to focus on that recovery and employment opportunities. Well, the employment is really the key. And this is one of the, the, the greatest things I think the governor has done. The Jobs and Hope Act is, is and you're, you're gonna hear a presentation next week if you come back. Uh, from the governor's office about that. But we already have almost 2,000 people that have taken advantage of that program. We can argue all day long about which type of treatment is the best or which drug is the best for medical assisted treatment. But the one fact that I think is not up to debate is if at the end of any of those treatments they're successful, but you cannot get and hold a good job that you can support yourself with, the treatment's gonna fail. You're gonna relapse. And that's why it's so important to have, when people get out of treatment, to have them employable, have them have job skills, get them in decent housing, and frankly, get them back to being productive, tax-paying citizens, which is what we all want and need, because we need these people back in our, in our workforce. Delegate Matthew Rohrabach, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you so much, sir. Chair of the House Committee on Prevention and Treatment of Substance Abuse. We appreciate it. Thank you. 
Next, my visit with Dr. James Berry, Director of Addiction Services at WVU Medicine. Dr. Berry is a member of the Governor's Council on Substance Abuse Prevention and Treatment and shared a very important perspective about treatment for and treatment of people living with substance use disorder. Steve, how are you doing? Doing good. Good. I have uh, eight years and five months in. Eight years and five months of sobriety? Yep. March the 21st will make me nine years. It's remarkable. Yep. Dr. James Berry is interim chair of the Department of Behavioral Medicine and Psychiatry at West Virginia University School of Medicine and its director of addiction services, treating patients at WVU's Chestnut Ridge Center. And you've had quite a journey too. Yes, I started out with drinking when I was young and marijuana and cocaine and... How old were you when you first started any of that? 10 years old, I probably took my first drink. My grandpa was uh, used to hide his liquor and stuff and I wanted to know Dr. Berry says an overwhelming representation of addiction patients have had what is known as adverse childhood experiences. Exposure to trauma as a child. This may include abuse, neglect, poverty, violence, family addiction, rape, and suicide. Such experiences can damage a child's developing brain. West Virginia's population ranks highest in the country for adverse childhood experiences. And so you can imagine where you are suffering the severe, severe pain psychologically and emotionally because of the trauma that you experience. And if you find a substance that can take that all away for a while, how seductive it would be to start using that. You find a substance at 10 or 11 years old that can help you feel good and um, help you escape, then you're gonna keep doing it. And then you find yourself then trapped by that substance because especially in adolescence, especially in adolescence, where the brain is going through all of these changes and making all the connections and it should be healthy connections. And you start throwing substances of abuse and misuse in there, it, it, it's a monkey wrench in that process and it just sets you up. So these people are coming to me at um, you know, 20, 25 years old, 30 years old, and they want help. And um, you know, some other people will say, well, they should just, why should they get help? They're choosing to use. And I would say, listen, they, were, they started an 11-year-old girl. And now they've developed all of these neurologic processes, all these psychosocial uh, contingencies that have kept them using. They don't want to use anymore. It's not their choice to just continue to use right now. They're making the choice to get help, and we need to do whatever we can to facilitate them making that good choice now to get the help that they need. Barry's team at Chestnut Ridge Center has developed a nationally recognized substance use disorder treatment model known as the Comprehensive Opioid Addiction Treatment, or COAT, program. It combines group therapy sessions and other psychological services with medication-assisted treatment. At the right dose, Suboxone suppresses cravings for opioids and eliminates withdrawal symptoms. Barry says there's still a long way to go to educate even clinicians about the merits of this evidence-based addiction treatment. The patient, when they're being treated with this medication, if over time they don't look any different, if they don't sound any different than they did before, then you could probably say they're just trading one drug for another. But what we see here with successful treatment, and it's not only here, it's all over the 
all over the world, really, where you see time and time again, when people are given access to this type of treatment, you see them start getting their lives back in order. I remember praying to God, please take this, the craving, waking up feeling like, you know, crap, and please take this craving away from me. And I mean, it was a long time before that happened. And I remember waking up one day thinking, gosh, I don't feel that way anymore. You know, I don't crave it. And I get up every morning and take my Suboxone and it just, it's really, it's helped me tremendously. I don't ever want that life back. How did you they start going back to work. They start taking care of their kids. They start taking care of themselves. They start going back to school and they become very, very productive members of society. So they don't look like they did before, okay? So they're not in the throes of addiction anymore. They're taking a medicine that's helping them feel normal and keeping them from getting sick, but they're not getting high on this stuff anymore. They're, they're feeling well and it's just a remarkable turnaround that people are able to do if they stick with it. And it takes time and it takes patience and all of that stuff. But what we find is as much as we are able to retain people and keep them in treatment, we see this over and over and over again, this course of health that they start em enveloping themselves in and getting better with. And I will say this, that as a doctor, there is no other area of, medic, of medicine where I have seen such a dramatic turnaround the way I have seen with addiction treatment. But Barry recognizes this medication, if not safeguarded, is misused and sold on the street. We, as a addiction treatment community need to be honest about that and try to do what we can to make sure the appropriate safeguards are in place regarding that and to not just dismiss those rea that reality. Now at the same time, when you look at a lot of the data that we have nationally and you look at these surveys of why are people using, uh, buying uh, these medications on the streets, and uh, the vast majority of them will say they're using them because they can't get into treatment, because we have a treatment access problem. And that um, they don't want to use heroin anymore, they don't want to use the risk, run into the risk of fentanyl and how dangerous that can be in overdosing, and so they know at least Suboxone will help them feel better and keep them from overdosing, so they'll use that. Um, that's not the case for everybody, but that is the majority and many of the patients that we've seen uh, who have used uh, these medications on the streets, uh, that's the reason why. And then they come to, uh, into us finally, say, listen, I've been trying to get into treatment. I don't want to use on the streets anymore. There's just been such a hard time getting into treatment that I want to do this the right way. Over the past few years, West Virginia has made strides in increasing availability of addiction treatment. Here at WVU Medicine, a full continuum of integrated behavioral health services, from its hospital to outpatient services at Chestnut Ridge, to its new 28-day residential treatment facility, the Center for Hope and Healing. In addition, telemedicine is connecting addiction treatment providers here with rural providers around the state. There are a number of um, people across the state who I have a tremendous amount of respect for and so glad that they are fighting the good fight and doing what they can from an addiction treatment perspective. And so these are the champions and the heroes uh, that are starting to uh, make use of evidence-based medicine. 
And uh, so you do see a number of people throughout the state, some of which that we continue to support and train and have really tight relationships with to help them do this in the right way. And, you know, so many who have, are just doing it on, on their own and figured out what works and looking at the evidence and built programs out of scratch and are doing fantastic work. Um, but we still have such a long way to go as far as when somebody has uh, either their own insight, I need help, or there's a judge or a spouse or a boss who's saying, you need to get to treatment, you need to get to now. We need to get to a place where they can do that now, and we are nowhere near that. Barry has been an active member of the Governor's Council on Substance Abuse Treatment and Prevention, which has unveiled its statewide substance use response plan, a comprehensive blueprint stressing prevention, access to evidence-based treatment, and the multiple community components necessary for long-term recovery. Barry stresses West Virginia's challenge is not about a particular abused drug. It's about a disease and addressing those social determinants of health, like poverty, homelessness, and isolation, that increase the rates of adverse childhood experiences. We need to be much more forward thinking regarding our strategies and recognizing addiction as a disease that transcends the particular substance. And if we just focus on one substance, we are going to be constantly chasing our tails because there's going to be other substances that, that evolve and come to uh, the communities that we don't even know about right now. And so that means we got to get at the root of how do we help people comprehensively deal with their mental health and addiction issues? How do we help um, resolve and address those determinants that put people at risk to start in the first place, regardless of the substance? For those struggling with an addiction or mental health issue, the West Virginia Department of Health and Human Resources has a toll-free hotline to call. That number is 1-844-HELP-4-WV. Tomorrow on the Legislature Today, we'll review the week here at the Capitol and get an update on several of the issues we've been following, as well as a look ahead to next week. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great evening.